All right, you guys, we're going to go ahead and get started if you want to find a seat. We are in now the season of Advent. And our, I'll just remind you, I won't make you sing, we'll, we'll sing De Crescendo last week. Just remind you that our, our kind of archetype for Advent is the De Crescendo, that we're going to try to, to load all of the busyness and stressful parts of Christmas into the early part of the month. So that as we get closer and closer to Christmas Eve, we're shutting things down. We're becoming more calm and, and having more space just, just to prepare our hearts for whatever God brings to us. And we're going to talk about that a little bit um, today. Mark Twain, is one of, he's one of my favorite guys because he's so snarky and hilarious. But he once wrote this, um, this phrase. He said, he who carries a cat by the tail learns something he can learn in no other way. This is great, right? And, and, and you get what he's, what he's saying, right? Like, just imagine for a moment that, that I have carried a cat by the tail. I have not. I'm not really a cat guy. But let's just imagine that I have and that I could recall it for you in vivid detail, like the precise experience of what it's like to carry a cat by the tail, what it felt like, what the cat did, what it sounded like, which would be horrendous. Um, and, and even if I was like the greatest storyteller ever, hearing about it would never be the same as if you actually did it yourself, right? That's what he's saying. There's this irreducible, irreducible form of knowledge that only comes through experience. It's like an inside joke, right? We would try to explain an inside joke to somebody who wasn't on the inside, right? It never works. Like, they, they can get the irony. They might say, yeah, that's hilarious. But they won't laugh, not the way you did. And then when they don't laugh, what you'll say is, you had to be there, right? That's, that's what you're saying. You had to have the experience. What's it like to carry a cat by the tail? Well, I could tell you, but you won't get it unless you were there. Um, I was uh, 39 years old when I first became a senior pastor, which means that for 38 years of my life, I had a very clear understanding of what a senior pastor was supposed to do, right? And then I became one and experienced it from the inside and found all of this complexity I knew nothing about. The burdens you care, the, the sense of powerlessness that presses down. I thought I knew what being a pastor was all about until I became one. And now I have this overwhelming urge to apologize to every pastor that I've ever um, served with or been under. When, when pastors get together, it's funny, we just, we just laugh at ourselves mostly because all pastors sort of share an inside joke about the things about this job that you can only know from, from the inside. And of course, this goes for almost any role or profession because there's a, a kind of knowledge that only comes by way of experience. I always feel this when, when I'm hanging around with mothers, with moms. There's a fraternity to motherhood, and I'm, I'm not part of it. I'm just, I'm just not. The, the, there's an experience of carrying a baby, of long months of expectation, all the changes to your body, the labor, the childbirth, and that's just the beginning part where it starts. Then comes the real motherhood, the depths of motherhood. It can only be known from the inside. It's uh, like what Burley Coulter would say. Burley Coulter is a, a great character in Wendell Berry's books. He's kind of this backwoods philosopher. Bur and Burley one time says, all women is brothers. That's what he says. And you get it, right? Like, all women aren't brothers. They are sisters, which Burley Coulter is trying to admit he knows nothing about, right? They all look like brothers to him, because that's, that's his only experience. 
The sisterhood of womanhood can only be known from the inside. And everything is like this. There's an important kind of knowledge in life that only comes from doing something. And in fact, everything we do shapes us. Our experiences form us like nothing else. I mean, information, intellect, they play a role. How we feel is part of it. But what really forms us isn't what we can read in a book or memorize so we can sound smart. It, it's what we encounter in like a holistic, embodied way. It's about what we do. It's, it's about being the boss and feeling the weight of that. It's about carrying the baby, delivering the child. Knowledge only comes from grabbing the cat by the tail ourselves. And, and then everything we do, it, it shapes us. When you carry a cat by the tail, any cat, every cat, that experience becomes part of who you are. It becomes part of you, that knowledge. And everything we do then shapes us. Now, at the same time, most of what we do is determined by our culture. Our culture dictates many of our behaviors. All cultures do this. They, they kind of preserve and transmit a powerful symbolic order to which we all conform most, uh, most of the time. There's tons of norms and customs, things that we do without even thinking about them. Everything from like how close we stand to one another when we talk or which way to face in an elevator to like big things like what are you willing to live for or die for or maybe even kill for. So many of our actions the cats that we carry or don't carry are determined by the culture. And much of it is good, but a lot of it is pretty bad. In our day, we are um, shaped by a culture of consumer capitalism. And it really defines us as a culture. It's inescapable. E even if we're like aware of it and trying to not get caught up in it, it we can't help it. It just happens. Nearly all of our default behaviors that we catch from the culture shape us in these consumer capitalistic ways that, that end up telling us that our worth as people is tied to how much we can earn and how much we can conspicuously consume. That what it means to be human is, is about how much you can produce and consume. And of course, it's not true. But most of what we do with our lives is trying to tell us that that's, that's true. And so it shapes us in ways that actually, if you think about it, make us less human as human is meant to be. And so this means that if, if we want to be more human as human is meant to be, if we want to be able to carry the image of God as, as we're meant to, if we want to be able to see God and commune with God, we need a different set of practices things that we can do, alternative practices that will shape us into the kind of people who do have this receptivity to God. We need, we need a different cat to carry by the tail, so to speak, a different set of habits and rhythms and practices that can help make us more human as human is meant to be, and therefore more able to relate to God. And this is why I so often say that Christianity is not a belief system. It's a new way to be human. And this, is, this, this way of Christianity is constituted really by a set of transformative and subversive practices 
that are patterned on the life and ministry and teaching and life and death and resurrection of Christ. Practices that can help us kind of carry the cat of Christianity, so to speak, by the tail. So that we can then be defined by that story over against any of the stories the culture wants us to tell. I mean, we talk about practices. The main Christian practices are aimed directly at kind of subverting the cultural narratives that are imposed on top of us. So, for instance, these are the ones we talk about a lot. Sabbath. Sabbath keeping subverts a culture of busyness. It's for one day a week, you say, we're, we're checking out of that and explore a different part of who we are. Tithing subverts consumerism. Tithing makes no sense according to that narrative. Weekly worship is like the liturgical shaping of just a different imagination for what life can be about. Practicing different movements together that, that we want to kind of take up all, all of the rest of the week. Things like daily prayer cultivate a sense of reverence for God in, in the ordinary and teach us the language of faith. Community subverts kind of in, radical individualism and the, the illusion of self-sufficiency. Things like solitude subvert a culture of entertainment and, and an idea of loneliness as we can transition from feeling lonely when we're alone to feeling a sense of solitude that connects us to God and even all of humanity. And then all of them kind of are drawn together in, in the last one, which is being paired with the outcast, whoever that might be. And this just transforms everything we do. Being paired with an outcast can transform, um, transform any practice into a spiritual practice. And there are many other Christian practices, but these are kind of the most basic ones that we talk about. If you carry these cats by the tail over a long period of time, then, then they have a kind of power. You'll learn things about yourself and about the world, about God, about each other, that you cannot learn in any other way. And, and what, what we, the claim we make as Christians is that what it teaches us are things that are actually true about us and each other and God and the world. There's a sense in which what Christianity really is at its heart is participation in this ongoing story and a set of practices within a common life of worship, mission, discipleship, and, and wholeness, these pursuits. And the purpose of it, this is to make us human, as human is meant to be, by reconciling us to God or reconnecting us to God through Christ. That's, that's Christianity. And to do this as kind of a daily, weekly, monthly, as a, as a pattern of our life. And, and fidelity to this way over time is what Christians call faith. Or often I will make it a verb and call it faithing. When we carry the Christian cat by the tail for a long, long time, we call this faith or faithing. And this faith gives birth to a whole new kind of humanity. Uh, Jesus called it being born again from above. We become a new creation, new kind of human, living a life that's now defined by cruciformity, like cross-likeness, by kenosis, this self-emptying, and, and by love. And as this happens, as we become more and more like Jesus, we become more and more human as human was meant to be. And this is really what we try to set our eyes on during Advent. We try to push the consumerism and consumer capitalism of, of the season 
to the edge. We, we did this thing, if you can see up on the lights, is the, the garland that we used last week to kind of go through sentimentality and cynicism and say we're trying to push even that, that sentimentality and cynicism of the, of the season aside and, and clear out this space to try to, to explore a different kind of life, one that's based in hope. And this is really kind of the, the Advent scene is to prepare, uh, prepare the way to, to pr- carve out space for God to come to us in, in a new way to experience God's presence in a new way. And our text for today is about how this happens. Um, it comes from the prophet Malachi. Let's read this. This comes from Malachi, um, starting chapter 2 and then going into 3. You have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, all who do evil are good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? And then it goes to the next chapter. See, I am sending my messenger to prepare the way before me. That prepare the way is this the Advent task. It's a season of preparation. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Indeed, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the descendants of Levi and refine them like gold and silver until they present offerings to the Lord in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be swift to bear witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired workers in their wages, the widow and the orphan, against those who thrust aside the alien or or, or the illegal immigrant, and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. The book of Malachi is interesting. It's, It's the last book of the Old Testament before this long season of silence. And it's really short. It's like 55 verses long. And in those 55 verses, there are 22 questions. God questioning the people and the people questioning God. Seven times God brings these statements to the people. And every time um, the people challenge the statement. It's, it's like having a teen, fight with a teenager. They just challenge you on, on everything. God says, How have, haven't I loved you? And they're like, how have you loved us? Look at us. And God's like, why do you show contempt for your name? And they're like, how do we show contemporary your name? It's like, it's like that. Like, why have you wearied me so? How have we wearied you so? You know, it's, you just want to like kick him out of the house. Um, so our text for today is sort of God's, the culmination of this, God's answer to all these questions. God says, you have wearied me. And he says, by saying all who do evil are good in the sight of the Lord. And he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Why is there no justice in the world? In the ancient world, it's, it's interesting. They thought that if um, you were successful or rich or powerful, it was because the gods, or here God, had favored you. You know, if you, if you won a battle um, or struck it rich, then God had taken delight in you, or your God was stronger than the other gods. And so, so they looked around and saw like the rich and successful and famous people, and, and they realized these are, these are not good people in, in our society. 
These are the worst kind of people. And so they protest. You, you, you reward these terrible people. Like, where's the justice in that? And this, we're told, wearies the Lord. That's how the, the other god of Mesopotamia acted. And, and so the people here have been, they've been shaped in such a way that they cannot see. It's, it's they who have promoted and supported the worst kinds of people. They're doing this to themselves. Yahweh's not to blame. They're, they're allowing this. They're engineering this to happen. But God has compassion and says this to them. See, I am sending my messenger to prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight indeed. He is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the descendants of Levi and refine them like gold and silver until they present offerings to the Lord in righteousness. So this is an interesting situation here. The people are crying out to God for help. And God says, okay, all right, I'm, I'm coming. Prepare the way, I'm coming. I'll draw near to you. But there's a sense in which you're not going to like it when I show up. For a people who have been so formed by their culture, you might say informed and deformed even by their culture, um, God's presence is going to expose some things that they don't really want to see. Like who can endure the day of his coming, the prophet asked, which is odd. Like, is there something, something wrong with God? Is God not safe? Is God angry or, or violent? Why this, this threat? Who can in, endure? And of course, there are many ways to read this. Um, a few that stick out to me, though. First, when God shows up in the world, typically, not, not always, but normally, when God shows up in the world, it's not with like some big flash or show or miraculous act. It's usually in the ordinary. It's still small voice, right? A gentle, calm presence. This is God's typical mode of interacting with us. And, and so only those people who have cultivated some kind of a keen sensitivity to God can, can sense God's presence, because God's trying not to, you know, overwhelm us. And, and so only those who, who, can, who have cultivated sensitivity can even see God, or those who are um, distracted or preoccupied with other voices, which is pretty much everybody, they won't hear. And so when God says, I'm coming near, it's, it's like a promise to turn up the volume just a, a, a tiny little bit to get our attention, and who can endure that? Or another reading is um, to say at the same time, whoever's making a ton of noise and bluster or trying to control the world by, you know, shouting louder than others, kind of mistaking their own voice for the voice of God and distracting other people, God will sort of kind, um, find a way to quiet them down when he comes near. And who can endure that? Or, you know, secular cultures are forever mistaking God for things that have a lot of flash and, and bluster, forever mistaking encounters with the principalities and powers of culture for an encounter with God. And so when God actually draws near, it, it's not good news for those who have a lot of cultural privilege and power. God will move to sort of bring them down a notch so that others can actually see the real thing. 
And who can endure that? Not those with power and privilege. At least not if they're mistaking that power and privilege with God, with an encounter with God. So, so Malachi suggests that when God shows up, this will expose a bunch of stuff that will need to go away. And changes that need to be made. And, and change, you know, it doesn't come usually without a little bit of pain and discomfort. So who can endure this, Malachi asks. And he gives these two images of, of how it's going to work. The first is the image of a crucible and refiner's fire. And the second is fuller's soap. And these are totally rich images. Um, specifically about the, the um, refiner's thing, it says God will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. That's drawn out. And scholars suggest that this alludes to like a specific practice of silversmiths in the ancient world. Um, they, when they were working with silver by hand, they would put like a small amount of ore into a crucible and put it in a really hot furnace until it would melt into liquid. And then they would pull the crucible out of the fire and then look straight down into it to see their own reflection. And, and they would scrape off all the impurities and dross from the surface and then do it again heat it up and, and bring it back out. And, and when the silversmith could finally see his or her own face perfectly in the molten silver, then they knew it was ready for, for um, casting or molding. But until they could see their face perfectly, their image perfectly clear, they would just keep up, heating it up and scraping off the dross. And, and the prophet saying, this is how God works with us. When God draws near to us, um, he kind of heats things up, right? And then looks to see if God can see God's image in us. And the disordered things, the things that keep that from happening are, are drawn off. The impurities that keep us from bearing the image of God. And that also make the metal weaker, right? They're, they're exposed by the heat. And then they can be drawn off. So God just scrapes off that which is corrupt. And what hopefully in the end is left behind actually bears the image of God. But it's not easy, right? It's painful often. And that's why the prophet asks, who can endure his coming? It's as if um, God's going to take all the broken pieces of Israel's national life, heat them up, and, and stare into that crucible that when God does this, God cannot see God's own reflection. It's just this mess of impurities and corruption and violence. And so God begins this process of heating things up and scraping away all that is keeping them from bearing God's image. And when the refining is complete and God stares into Israel's life, God wants to see God's own reflection in their common life. That's the first metaphor. The second metaphor is that he's like Fuller's soap, which isn't a thing that we use much anymore. In the ancient world, um, by the way, refining metal was kind of a masculine image. Mostly, this was men who did this. The, the soap, fuller soap, was used by women. It's a feminine in, image. And it had two main uses. If you take a bunch of raw wool, fulling fullers, are, they work with wool, right? That's what the word means. And so if you take a bunch of raw sheep's wool, fresh off the sheep's back, and then saturate it with fuller's soap, you, you kind of work with it and rub out all the dirt and the oils and other impurities. And then what happens is the, those wool fibers start to kind of puff up 
and they cling to each other almost like Velcro. And they're big and fluffy. And then they would take these bats and kind of, or sticks and, and beat them flat, beat the wool flat into what we would call felt. It's like felt. And, and they could make from this like thick wool blankets. So they'd use, use them as cheap rugs or as, as like um, donkey cloths, like a, a makeshift saddle to ride on. But in this state, it wasn't very strong and it wasn't very valuable. But the other use was, instead of beating it into, a, into felt, they would pull it apart, like brush it and cart it apart, and then take that and spin it into a, a thick yarn. You could use a, a thick yarn for like coats or cloaks or, or blankets or rugs, or sometimes they would spin it into a very fine thread that then they could, like it's tightly wound, and, and then they could make fabric out of it. And that's, if that's what they did, then Fuller's soap comes back into the process. So what they would do is they would take this, they would make really tightly wound thread and make fabric out of it. And then they would take that and saturate it with Fuller's soap and scrub it and wash it and rinse it again. And then when it was done, they would take it out and, and stretch it tightly on stakes in the sun and bleach it with the sun. The sun would turn it, turn it more white. Then they, when it dried, they take it out and they do it all again. They, dip it in fuller soap and, and scrub it and rinse it and stretch it and bleach, bleach it out in the sun and then they do it again and again. And each time they did, the, the coarse um, wool fibers would break down and become softer and the impurities were removed and it would be stronger and, and it would be much whiter after time and it would shrink into a kind of even more tight, a tighter weave and become more beautiful and fine. And the more times they did this process, um, and it took a lot of time and work. It would make the fabric softer, but at the same time, stronger and, and more beautiful and whiter. And if you think about it, in the ancient world, there were very few things that were white in the Middle East, right? So it was stark, it was stunning. And this produced this fabric that was extremely valuable in their world and rare. That's the second image Malachi uses smelly, dirty wool right off a sheep's back. You can beat it down. It's not very worth very much. But with Fuller's soap and a ton of work, it becomes something really strong, really beautiful and fine and of great value. And this is, Malachi says, this is how God works with our lives. It's kind of about this long process of helping us make the most of the raw materials we've been given exposing us to what is sometimes a kind of a harsh project to remove the impurities and make something that is beautiful and strong. And there are kind of two ways that this can happen. Um, it can happen all at once or little by little. And you can kind of guess which is, which is the better option for us, right? If you carry the cat by the tail, day in and day out over a long period of time, um, then when, when God actually shows up, you're sort of ready for it. It's more like just a continuation of a project in, in which you're already engaged. So you're already trying not to mistake cultural power for the power of God. You're already trying to recognize in the weakness of God actually the, the power of God. You, you've become attentive to the still small voice already. You're, you're not noisy and distracting others. 
All right, it's already happening little by little. And, and so the prophet is kind of alluding to the fact that this is who can endure when he comes. Or he can do the complete opposite and, and either miss God completely or experience the coming of the Lord as an almost unbearable presence and trial. And this is, this is the heartbreaking stuff for me to watch in my own life and, and, and in others. And it's that one where I've seen kind of the pain of the refining process sometimes just wreck people. And it's heartbreaking. Barbara Brown Taylor says it this way, it is sometimes hard to tell whether you are being killed or saved by the hands that turn your life upside down. In the season of Advent, the reason we celebrate the church calendar and all the different movements, but especially Advent, it's about um, committing ourselves to letting the trials save us, not kill us, not wreck us, to allow God to draw near and sort of um, turn our lives upside down, turn the heat up a little bit, expose some things work with us in some ways that might feel a little bit rough. And it can feel like we're dying when in truth we're actually coming to life, being born again from above this time. And so Advent is this season in which we agree to sit in the crucible of God's presence until, until we bear the image of God. We submit to the fuller's soap in the process of stretching and scrubbing that kind of washes away the impurities and transforms us into something beautiful and valuable and strong and fine. And, and what you'll find if you work this season of Advent and work this day crescendo that we're talking about is that um, some of what you think you are won't survive. Jesus is coming. This is, this is a really difficult part of it. Some of what you think you are is going to have to die off. And this will be painful, especially if it's something you've become really attached to or something that you've kind of built your whole identity upon. As God draws near to us, some of what we think is us, think is our life, it won't survive. But here's the thing. It's, it's really just the part that's killing you. You just can't see it now. And so when we let it go, it feels like death. It feels like we're losing part of ourselves. But it's not part of ourselves. It's the part that's killing us. And it can't make it through the fire and the process of Fuller's soap. It can't make it through. But you will, you will make it through. And so the preparation in the season of Advent is really about kind of submitting our lives to this sort of process. It's a way of however we do it. That's just an image, you know, but it's a way of trying to allow God to have access to our lives, all of it, the good, the bad, and ugly. And it'll turn our lives upside down a little bit. It, it, it's weird. If you're, if you're really doing Advent right, you're so out of step with the rest of the culture. I mean, you're just 
completely opposite to everyone, you start to feel a little odd, a little strange about it. And it makes us weak at our strong points and then strong at what we thought was our weak points. That's what it does. It breaks us down where we were just sure we had some strength. It's usually strength in relation to the culture. And and, and we're, we're tempted to trust in, in ourselves or in, in those cultural things. If we, and, and we're tempted to think that it's our hard work or our discipline or whatever that's generating our lives instead of re- receiving our lives. Advent breaks that down. But it also builds us up where we're weak, where we've failed. Even our deepest, like our shames, our struggles, where we've blown it, that, th- those things, regrets, they become this source of strength as God draws near to us. And, and then eventually we can, we can actually stand in the world as God's image-bearing creatures. And this is what the whole thing is about. Some of what you think you are won't survive Jesus' coming, but it's, it's the part that's killing you anyway. But it takes this intentional making of space, the Sabbath space, where we say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to face that stuff, expose it to God, and see if I can let it die off a little bit. And so, I mean, I guess it's going on 14 years now that we've tried to do this as a church. Every year it's something new that has to die off. Sometimes it's the same stuff. I'm like, this is a repeat of eight years ago. Like, why is this happening again? This is how it goes. But over time, what you'll find is you, you're, you realize in the moment... I'm coming more alive than I've been. I'm more myself. I recognize God's presence more in my life than I did 13 years ago. Advent is this season of preparation where we we start to let this happen, right? This spiritual practice of day crescendo where we try to go the opposite way of the culture. As they're ramping up, we ramp down. And and our, our idea is let's get the crazy cultural Christmas stuff out of the way early, and then day crescendo, prepare the way of the Lord, packing the exhausting and stressful stuff early, and then holding off on the Christmas celebration until late, and, and trying to find late in the month a space for solitude and quiet. You think about um, mothers who are about to give birth, you think of Mary in that season, you know, mothers who are about to give birth, they don't go far from home, stay pretty close to home. They, say, they start saying no to invitations. That's where we're headed toward the end of the month in December, becoming still and quiet and waiting to see what's going to be born if we'll expose ourselves to God during this season. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for this season of Advent and for a chance to engage in a different rhythm. And... We give you thanks for our culture. We love the world that we live in. We're grateful for our lives. But we know it's out of step with you so often. And so much of what we do is shaped by other sources that don't know who we are and who you want us to be. And so all of us here as a community gathered today and all of redemption as a whole, we just um, declare our intention to you Our God, we want this month to be a season of preparation. And we ask you to give us courage to bring our lives before you 
and allow you to speak to us and refine us. We want so much to bear your image and, and to be human as you intend that to be. But we need your help. And so help us to prepare the way for you. Help us to endure the day of your arrival. Amen. I invite you to stand, please. And we're going to receive communion now. And we invite anybody who calls on the name of Christ to join us at the table. Um, on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks for it, he broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. To which his disciples probably were a little confused. And then in the same way after supper, he took the cup, one common cup, he blessed it and passed it around. They all drank from the one cup. And he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, a new deal between humanity and God that's established in my blood, which blood meant life to them. And he said, every time you gather, take this bread, drink this cup, remember my life, take it into your own life, be made of the stuff I'm made of, and then um, go out into the world. And, and be salt and light to them. He said, every time you gotta do this, and so this is, why, this is why we practice communion at the end of our gathering, is to remember who we are and what we're supposed to be made of and to receive this into our bodies once, one more time. And so we invite you to join us um, in this, this feast that draws us into to the life of God and draws the life of God into us. Um, let's pray a blessing on the table. Heavenly Father, we ask your blessing on this bread and this cup. May it be to us a spiritual food and drink, a means of your grace. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us. Make us new from the inside out. And then send us out into the world to be salt and light. And let our world Feast on us and taste and see your goodness. All to the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forevermore. Amen. Will you come?